A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Battleground Ukraine's big interview with me, Saul David and Patrick Bishop. This week, we're running the second half of our gripping interview with Aidan Aslan, the Briton who was captured with survivors of his Ukrainian Marine Battalion after the fall of Mariupol in April 2022. Tortured, forced to appear in propaganda videos and later sentenced to death, he was eventually reprieved and exchanged in a prisoner swap. He's now written a book about his extraordinary experiences, Putin's Prisoner, and I urge you all to buy it. Can you just say something, Aidan, about uh, the relative status of the of the regular Russian army and the DPR people? You said earlier that given a choice, your officer would rather surrender to the Russians than the DPR. Can you give the listeners some idea of the kind of characteristics of the DPR, why you feared them more than the Russians? So, so basically, the difference between the Russian forces and the DPR is the Russian forces, obviously, on paper, they're like official in terms of Geneva Convention standards. That's on paper, though. But the fact that they gave us to the DPR, which, um, for those who don't know, the Donetsk People's Republic is basically, but it was basically created by a few people from Russia. One of the main architects of it was, yeah, Igor Gherkin. Who's just been arrested by Putin. Yeah, so Igor Gherkin, he was also responsible for the shooting down of MH17 and also responsible for the armed groups that uh, took uh, the administration buildings in Crimea back in 2014. He was also a key key part in helping create these armed groups in East uh, Ukraine as well. And as he, at one point, he was also the Ministry of Defense for that region, well, for that proxy area. So, there's a lot of help from Russia in the beginning to create these groups and give it the illusion that it's it's Ukrainians, but the people in charge aren't Ukrainian. So from the outset, it's always been a pretty like nationalist sort of force, um, Russian nationalists basically, um, with a deep hatred for Ukraine. So we we knew because of how long this conflict has been going on for that they're not going to be as nice as the Russians would be, if any of that could even make any sense at all. 
especially with the fact that they they don't go through any training at all it's pretty uh hillbilly so to speak a lot of the dpr guys i met they would always like stink of alcohol or they they'd look like someone that's just doing drug taking so the other thing i want to highlight as well one of the things that russia did in this situation is just by them handing us to the dpr proxies like that that was another like war crime breach that they did because it's like stated that you're not allowed to like transfer custody of prisoners to like other groups involved in the conflicts unless it's unless they surrendered to that group otherwise if you transfer prisoners to another group that you're fighting with then it's an obvious breach of the uh, Geneva Convention but yeah so that sums up why we didn't want to be in their custody because all sorts of stuff could happen to us and it's they've got a pretty like big reputation for like mistreatment of prisoners and everything else that went with that especially with uh, 2014 and 2015 so once we were there and we we realized we were in dpr hands uh, because we saw it on the on the military clothing they had it on the patches and obviously when the intelligence came they had the mgb chevrons on, on their uniform so by by this stage they they know i'm a foreigner they know i'm british um, and they know that they want to take me so they they put me back into the warehouse with the ukrainians and I think it's it must have been like 10 or 20 minutes after they came to get me but when they put me back in I remember I remember I went back over to my uh, platoon commander I I, brace, I basically said to him they're going to take me I need you to tell my family that I love them and like tell my uh, my fiance that I love her because like I I knew 100% they would be taking me and I was pretty sure that they were just going to take me to be shot or something and then 10 minutes later, they they shouted my name. I went to the front and they placed handcuffs on me. And uh, they, they, they took me to a SUV and put me in the back. And then as we're driving out of this compound, um, one of them who's in the passenger seat, he turns to me and said, like, we're now taking you to be shot. And I, I remember when he said it, like, I understood everything he said, but I just pretended I didn't understand any of it and just remained quiet. And I just tried to prepare myself mentally for like, this is it, basically. How do you do that, Nate? I was just pretty much like speaking to myself, like inside my head. Um, and I was just like thinking about like my family and my fiance. Like, I was pretty emotionless. I'd, I'd, I'd say it desensitized me. I was probably desensitized by that point. And I, I pretty much accepted it that it was going to happen. At the time, there was like three people in the vehicle. I did think about like maybe trying to at least do something before they shot me. But like, I, I realized my chances are pretty slim because just because there's three people against one person. Um, so I just accepted it and uh, spent the remainder of the, the time, like just in the back of this SUV, like thinking I'm about to be shot. And eventually an hour goes by and I'm thinking to myself, I can't be, I, they're not shooting me obviously, because like, why would you drive for an hour and a half to shoot someone? And then I realized, okay, like I'm being taken to be interrogated. Like I know what's coming. I know what's coming next because that's the logical conclusion. Um, so at this point, I'm like trying to prepare myself mentally. I'm I'm saying to myself, they're going to beat you. Like they're going to. The next part is going to be very very painful. So I'm trying to build like this mental brick wall inside my head, just trying to like get some sort of trance going in my mental mind to like try and put my mind somewhere else and eventually we, we get to Donetsk and I only know we get to, to Donetsk because I, when they put the bag on me there was like little holes and I was able to like track the environment I was going through 
Um, so I was keeping track of like what we were going past and looking at signs and stuff. And we get to Donetsk and we're taken to this uh, building. Um, they wait for the gate to open and go in. And then they, they come to the back, they open the door, they take the handcuffs off. And then I put my hands behind my back, like just out of respect and fear. And then some guy who's like stood there, he says something to me. I don't understand anything he says. So I asked him to like politely like repeat what he said. And then as soon as I said that, that's when I uh, got hit around the head with a police truncheon. And then he continued to beat me a few more times and I fell to the floor. He then like grabs me and then drags me into a uh, into the building and put me in a uh, room with two other Ukrainians who were stood against the wall. One of them was a female and she had a hood on her head. And then he he started to beat me like relentlessly for like two hours. Um, at one point, I I lost consciousness for a few seconds, and then I came back to. And then he started beating me, but at the same time, like he's beating me, like he's he's asking me all these questions. He's like, but the the, the questions he's asking, the like very basic like sort of stuff that you would expect him to ask. What unit are you in? Um, what's your rank and how much you get paid? very basic stuff and i i also knew as well because we surrendered there was no battalion headquarters anymore like everyone all the information that there was it's now all expired there is nothing there so i was like trying to think of what i can and can't say uh, and then i also had to process what was available on the internet because of my social media i, I had a social media account called Cossack gundy which i used to educate people about the conflicts in ukraine and I knew there was a lot of stuff online of me, like my friends who I was with. There was uh, plenty that they could go online and find and use against us. So I was like trying to think of answers that that they would most likely find out about because it's online. So there was a lot of that sort of thinking going going on in my head. And then obviously by the point that I'd like lost consciousness, I was completely exhausted. I, I had concussion. And eventually he stops, he stops beating me and he takes, he takes a cigarette out and he's like smoking a cigarette um, like just having a rest. And he's like, asking me like, do you know who I am? And I'm like, no. And he says, I am your death. And then he asked me if I want a quick death or do I want a beautiful death? Um, I say quick death. Um, cause when he said beautiful death, I, I started thinking about like images I'd seen of like ISIS videos and stuff like that. And then he said to me, uh, did you see what I did to you? Um, and I said, no. And then he pointed to my shoulder. And uh, when I looked over, I could see there was a huge stab wound here. Um, it turned out he had actually stabbed me at some point during the beating. I just didn't feel it because of the adrenaline. So as soon as I saw that, that's when I immediately like went into like pretty much survival mode because after I lost consciousness the first time, like when I was back to and he kept beating me, I, I could feel myself drifting. Like I was like incredibly sickly exhausted. Like I, I felt really, really bad. I was uh, basically go black again. And I knew if that happens, I'm probably not going to wake up. So at, at that point, I'm trying to stay alive, just telling them like what he wants to know. Um, so he's asking, he keeps like asking the same questions and I keep saying the same thing and he keeps beating me. And then he told me to take my clothes off and he's like looking at my tattoos. Um, so he, he sees this tattoo and he says, I'm a sniper. And I'm like saying, I'm, I'm mortars. It's not a sniper. 
And then he beats me for that tattoo. And then he sees the Ukrainian trident tattoo. He beats me for that. And then I have a tattoo here of my time in Syria. And then he he asks, uh, what's that? And then as soon as, he, as soon as he said that, I remember like thinking like, oh, God. So I said I was in Syria. As soon as I said Syria, he said, oh, you're in Syria. And then he beat me for that. And then he was like asking like more, like, are you ISIS? Are you ISIS? And I was like, no, 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 no. And I kept like trying to explain to him. But every time I was like trying to explain to him, he was beating me. And I was trying to basically just say I was with the Kurds. And then eventually he he said, okay, we've got someone that was in Syria. We're going to bring him here. And then they brought another guy and he he got his knife out. And he was like, got it to my neck. And then he like took my ear and he basically just hold hold his knife there and he says like if you don't if you don't tell me which unit you were with in uh in syria with the kurds like what the commander's name was i'm gonna cut your ear off and i was like I, I don't know it was like five years ago and then eventually one of them understood what i was trying to say like they they understood kurdistan so then they they laid off that part and then continued beating me a bit more and then eventually they 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 dragged me and stood me up and they they shouted over one of the uh female prisoners that was in the room and they they pulled her over because she she had a hood on, so she she didn't really know what to do. And he basically like took her hand and like told her told her to grab the the truncheon and and tried to make her to hit me. But obviously because she was so frightened and a captive herself, she she didn't she was crying. She didn't she didn't want to do it. So he, he snatched the uh, baton from her and then he he said something like, "That's not how you do it. This is how you do it." And then he uh, beat me with it. And then eventually, because at this point I'm like on the floor, and losing it, like um, I can feel myself going. I remember there was there was another third guy like just, that was lingering the whole time, but he was never in the room. He would just poke his head through once in a while, and eventually he came in when he was beating me, and I I just all I remember him saying like was like stop stop you're going to kill him, and then he stopped, and then he like kicked me one more time, and then he like left the room. And then this other Russian guy, and I remember I, I saw his uniform, and he looked a, a lot well kept. And the the guys who the guy who was beating me, so I, I presumed he was obviously like a Russian. So he came in, and he was obviously playing uh, like Mister Nice Guy. Told me to sit on the uh, on the seat, and he uh, he spoke to me in some English. He was like, um, like, do you want to talk now? And then he like looked at my stab wound and he says like we can get a medic to look at that and i was just like yeah yeah i'll i'll talk and then he took me through to a side room just next door and sat me on a chair and he basically uh, he asked if i wanted some water and i said okay and he gave me like a police style witness statement asking me to tell me everything i've done it wasn't really questions the only the only like weird sort of questions that he asked me those he asked me like he says like are you SAS and I said to him like dude like look at me do I look like I'm SAS <laughs> um, I mean at, at the moment I'm like super fat but back then I wasn't really as fat but I wasn't I didn't have the body of someone that would be like SF <laughs> um, so I was like saying to him like dude like do I look like I'm SAS and he was like okay fair enough that's a good point and then he said uh, like are you MI6 I says dude like I'm I'm, I'm I'm a private in the Ukrainian Marines and in, in the mortar company. Like my job is a really easy job. I don't have the intelligence to do that kind of work. And he was like, okay. And then he said, like, have you spoken to like any intelligence services? And I was like, no. And 
he it just went on and it just turned into basically the police statement where you just tell your life story and like what you've done and what, how you got here basically and then after that they took me back in they took me back into the room i got beat in and i remember going back in there thinking i was about to go through round 2 um, but then another guy came and he just put some handcuffs on me and then, like led me to a uh, prison cell where there was 17 people in the uh, in this like small room and I remember I went in and they didn't take the handcuffs off. Like, they're still behind my back. So I had to sleep with my handcuffs behind my back and there was no beds. It was just like concrete floor. And uh, I pretty much fell asleep pretty quickly just because I was so exhausted and drained. So that was the first night in Russian uh, captivity in this place. It's an extraordinary story, Aslan. Uh, thank you for going into it in such detail. I mean, the tale doesn't get any happier of course does it because you are forced to film propaganda videos for the russians for the dpr um but you're also i mean there's there's an encounter with one of the characters that i found among a cast of pretty bad characters one of the most despicable in the book and that's this uh this britain graham phillips you describe him and i think i would agree with you as one of putin's useful idiots tell us a little bit about phillips and the role he played in this story so for, so for people who don't know who Graham Phillips is, he's basically one of us. He's British. He's from Nottingham, and I'm from Nottingham as well. It's quite ironic. And he he basically went out to Ukraine back in the late uh, 2000s. I think it was uh, 2008, if I remember correctly. Um, so he lived over there for like a few years, and he he used to run a a website that was basically just a blog that would rate uh, prostitutes that he'd slept with, and he would write reviews about them and stuff. And it was it was like pretty much a like sleazy like blogger. And obviously, the Maidan Revolution happened, and he instantly took the side of the the Russians um, because of his political beliefs in like women and traditional uh, culture values and stuff like that and he he never really got took on by any like major like russian media um he, he got took on by rt for like one moment in his uh, short-lived career and eventually they, they got rid of him just because of how much of a idiot he is basically um so he he continued the focus on his youtube channel which was graham phillips and he was uploading all sorts of videos. There was one point, there was another video where he did a video with a Ukrainian POW who was waiting to be exchanged in the ambulance. And this guy like suffered a landmine injury and he'd lost like limbs. And I, th I think he was partially blind. And he's in the back of this ambulance, like waiting to cross the line. And uh, Graham Phillips has got the camera in his face, like shouting all, all sorts of abuse at him telling him like how how is pretty much scum and stuff like that and the the ukrainian prisoner like is like responding back to him like telling him, like i know who you are like you're a traitor to your country you only do this because of the hate involved and uh, he's, he's not a very nice character he's um i, I mean I, I know quite a lot about him because i've like studied him i was actually planning to make a post about him before the invasion luckily i didn't because he probably would have like took took that out on me with his uh comments but I remember when I got taken out because I, I, by this point, um, like the day after the beating, the Russian MGB came to see me again, but this time it was two different people I hadn't met. And one of the first things that they said to me was, uh, your famous logger, 
And then as soon as I heard him say that, like I knew exactly where this was going. Um, and they, they basically like looked at my social media. This is oh, so you have like a hundred and a uh, hundred and fifteen thousand followers. And then they looked at my Twitter, and I could see where they were going from, like with this, because I had studied propaganda before, like like from my own personal research. So I knew quite a lot about Russian propaganda itself. So as soon as you mentioned that, I knew exactly what they were going for. And after that, like meeting, like they started bringing Russian propagandists. They brought Rodenko, who's another big uh, propagandist and stuff like that. And all of this, meanwhile, at the same time, which is worth mentioning, like I, I never asked to do any of this. I was just taken out myself, sat down and they would bring them. I didn't really have a choice in refusing it because again, like this place I'm in, they don't feed you. Like you're basically given like a tiny piece of bread. Um, and then you, you, you're lucky if you get like a tiny bit of water, like it's just stuff to keep you alive, basically. So they, they pretty much effectively starve you there. And then the conditions that they keep you in, there's no toilet. So you're, you're in this like small room with like at, at one time we had like 30 people. And you, most of the time you had to like urinate into like an empty bottle. In this place, I didn't like go for a poo for like, like uh, three weeks just because of like how like restricted everything was there and so so when i get taken out uh this time i actually i, I mentioned so the, the day before graham phipps arrived there was a italian journalist that was brought to me to like do an interview and i remember when i went in the room the italian journalist didn't really want to be there like he was really uncomfortable being there like he even said it to me um but he was there kind of because they kind of like pushed him to be there and he said like he would only agree to do it if if he and like myself are like left alone in the room and so they they did that and i remember he was like saying to me like i'm i'm really uncomfortable doing this because like we we didn't really want to do this because of your situation and i just hope you can understand our situation and i was like yeah he he was basically just asking questions like normal to a degree but he spoke to me like humanely should i say i knew at that point that i i couldn't say anything truthfully to him because i know once once that video does come out and then the people that are in the prison will will get wind of it so i knew i wouldn't be able to say anything truthfully anyway so like there, there still was no control on my on myself to like say what i wanted but i remember when he left me like he, he offered to like roll up some italian tobacco into cigarettes and he told me like just to hide it like hide it somewhere because i mentioned to him that we get taken out for like air like for like 20 minutes in the morning and sometimes you're allowed to smoke a cigarette if you have them so he he told me to hide them before he left and uh, when i got out of captivity i went back to look for the interview and he he, he made an article and in the article himself, like he, he stated that he doesn't think that I'm a mercenary because of like what what the situation was. He he mentioned like one of the uh, one of the questions he asked me was which company like which private military companies like hired you, and I would say something along the lines of like um, I'm I'm employed by the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense. I enlisted in the military in 2018. And then he asked a similar sounding question to that effect. And I repeat, I repeated the same thing that I'm a Ukrainian Marine that like enlisted in 2018. And because of the way I, I sentenced it, he concluded in his article that I'm obviously not a mercenary pretty much. So fast forward a day later, I'm taken out of my cell again. This time I, I'm, I don't know what for. Um, I thought maybe it was the MGB guys that are coming to do some propaganda 
Um, but they, they sat me down on the chair and um, I'm just sat there like wondering what, what's happening. And then I can hear people talking. I can hear someone coming. I was like, oh, it's probably more journalists. And then in walks Graham Phillips. And I, I see him. I was like, oh, God, not this guy. And he walks in. He spots the uh, the guy who uh, beat and stabbed me. And he immediately he says something to him. I can't, I can't remember what he called him. But it was like he hadn't seen him for a long time. So he obviously like knew who this person was. He then got, got to setting up his camera stuff. He introduced himself. And then as soon as the camera like started recording, that's like when he like totally changed like his uh, attitude, like just went straight on the offensive, psychotic sort of behavior. Like the first thing he said to me was just for those that are watching, obviously because Aiden is uh, a mercenary and therefore not like protected by the Geneva Convention, etc. But because we're all nice people, he kept pushing that I was a mercenary, even though his own research would tell him otherwise. And he still, to this day, he still continues to call me a mercenary, like on his like social media. Um, even though, like, after various like international like organizations have said we're not mercenaries, he still chooses to call us it. Um, there was one point in the interview where he says to me, "Like, what are you?" like sarcastically and then i'm like i say like a mercenary and then he he says to me um like do you know what the punishment is for mercenaryism in donetsk and i was like no and then he says it's the death sentence and everything that he asked me it was like the typical propaganda sort of indoctrination lines that they would say nazis this nazis that he he's he's pretty much a uh, propaganda tool because he he sprouts out so much nonsense and people listen to it. All at the same time, like I, I'm trying to like think of the the key propaganda points that they want to hear because even though he's in front of me, the guy who like beat and stabbed me is like still close by. Well, that was very chilling, wasn't it, Saul? Uh, do join us in part two when you'll hear what happened to Aiden next. If you're looking for plump lips at last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XE and Juvederm Ultra XE, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XE or Juvederm Ultra XE. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions or if you are allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all gel fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit www.juvederm.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. 
Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Welcome back to the second half of this week's big interview with our guest, Aidan Aslan. This is what he told us next. Yeah, I believe your, your MP, Robert Jenrick, has in fact accused him of committing a war crime by interviewing you in those circumstances. He's a very strange guy. We might discuss him a bit later on. But uh, tell us about how your, you were then used by the Russian state propaganda thereafter. This infamous video that, that was made and then put out in which she appeared to to go along with a kind of their version of events so so yeah from the very beginning like as soon as those mgb guys turned up and they they said i was a famous blogger i knew straight away where it was going um so i knew they were going to use me for propaganda just because in their eyes someone with one hundred and fifteen thousand followers in russian standards makes them a celebrity so from from that very moment like day after day they would bring like new people to interview me the MGB guys themselves, they would continue to come. They would get me to, to make phone calls and stuff. And th the person where this video came from of me where I'm like beaten up, this was the day, this was like the morning after I'd been beaten. Um, I think it was Radenko or it was one of the MGB propaganda guys that was pretending to be a journalist. And they came into this video. So I, I knew to go along with this uh, charade. But at the same time, I knew like they massively screwed up because... I, I remembered I did the proof of life video, so I knew 100% people would now see what they've done to me. So I was, I was kind of not not giggling, but laughing at them inside my head at how stupid they were, uh, especially with how quickly that vi that video went viral. I knew that people would see what happened to me, and anything I did say, like people wouldn't believe it, just because like you could easily look at the photo and video from before I surrendered, and then the video the day after. So it continued to go into like just being taken out to do propaganda like every day, M met various propagandists, the MGB guys themselves, they would come to me like pretty much every day. Uh, they would, they started by getting me to make phone calls to like various different like government like departments like Boris Johnson's uh, like office, Robert Jenrick's office and various other like uh, departments in Britain. And then of course they... In the beginning, they had me phone my uh, family once, and then that stopped. And then a month later, when I was in the prison, they uh, they got me to start calling my mother like pretty much every day because they they realised at that point my mother was in contact with the Foreign Office, so she knew more information than what the press was saying in the newspapers. So they they were making me call her, and then I would be passing her messages from what the Russians wanted her to do. So they were just using me as like a propaganda mouthpiece. But at the same time, I, at least I knew that my mum could still hear that I was still alive. The the other thing that was uh, quite interesting on reflection as well, when when they first made the video call, 
to my family one of the first things like my family said like how do we know this is you like how do we know this isn't like a recording like what day is it i was like saying she was like what do you mean it's me like i don't know how do i know what the day is and i i asked him i was like what's the date and i was like okay we believe you and uh, the the other thing that they did so out of nowhere like i'm 100 percent sure it's definitely not connected to what's just happened and it's definitely not connected to any of the russians in in power but my uh, fiance, she got a message from um, Victor Medvedchuk's uh, wife, and I'm pretty sure like none of it's connected to anything that's going on with me. Um, in in ironic fate, um, obviously it's all connected. But um, she got a message from Victor Medvedchuk's wife, and Victor Medvedchuk is a Ukrainian oligarch who is the godfather to Putin's daughter, and he he was detained by uh, Ukraine's SBU. A few days before I went into captivity, I think. So they, they, the Russians came to me and said, like, oh, um, so the wife of Viktor Medvedchuk has made posted a video calling for you and Sean to be exchanged for her husband. And I only knew a bit about Viktor Medvedchuk at the time, but I, I, they, they showed me the video and this is like, now like we would like you to make a response to her. Like, would you like to do that? And I was like, okay. So I did a I did a response video like appealing to his wife I can't remember what what her name was Oksana Marchenko or something basically saying that the the Donetsk People's Republic has agreed to exchange me and Sean Pinner for Viktor Medvedchuk and that was the that was the key propaganda message that I was to say every time when I would speak to any like government like agencies or departments or the Foreign Office or if they made me speak to any like journalists that's what that's what I was to say. And that that went on for the entire month that I was in this place. So I'd, every time I was always put in front of a camera, they always like told me to like mention it. Aiden, they, there are so many uh, dark aspects to this book, but undoubtedly the darkest is the killing of a fellow prisoner um, that you you were forced to listen to because it happened in the in the room next door. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So so by this point, this this was like the week before we went to court. And the it was on the weekend it happened. I think it was Sunday, if I recall correctly. And the previous Friday and Thursday, because the guys I was in the prison cell with when I first arrived, they had been taken out in what I thought was a prisoner exchange, and they moved me to the cell like opposite us, like on the other side of the corridor. So I was with like new people in this cell, and. Um, I got taken out like a day after that and they took me to the medical commission where I uh, saw Sean and Ibrahim for the first time. And I remember speaking to Sean, like, I mean, cause it was good to see him. Cause I, like, in the very beginning, like I thought it was dead. Cause like when, when I first surrendered, they, they said that they found he, he'd been killed and I saw that he was alive. And then we exchanged some information. Like they, they were being kept at some sort of black site. Like they beat them every day. And um, I was like trying to process why why we've been split up, but I kind of figured maybe it's the uh, propaganda stuff. And on the Friday we went to Mariupol. The investigators took us to Mariupol for the court case stuff, like to take some pictures. And then we I came back to the prison, and uh, on the Sunday we're in the prison cell, and and on weekends in the prison, like it's it's not normally a day new people come in. It's pretty quiet on weekends if you if you don't have the sadistic guard on shift. And um I remember we were just sat down and we just we just heard someone like like winching in pain like like down the corridor and it was like, is that someone getting beaten? And then 
as it went on, like we realized it's a new, it's someone that someone new that's arriving and it, and it just continued to go on for like more than like 15 minutes. And when you do this, like gauntlet, like it, it should take, you no know, less than like 10 minutes. Um, so we could hear that he was being beaten pretty badly. And eventually after like 20 minutes, he, he gets to our cell block and they're still beating him. Like we stand to attention because when they open the door, uh, well, when they come to the door, you have to stand to attention and shout like glory to Russia three times. Um, and then also if they open the door, you have to like lay down. So everyone gets into a position ready. So, cause in, in this prison cell, it's a two man solitary confinement cell. There's two bump beds. Um, but in my cell, we had five people. Um, so it's like a very, like very small cell. So it was always best to prepare if we need to get into a position. And I remember we, we got ready and we could hear him coming and, Thankfully, they opened the door next to us, so we we were just listening to what was going on, like trying to like just hear any information. We could hear him beat him a few more times, and then he started explaining the rules to him. He was like saying this and that, and at one point, like he asked him like what unit you were in, and then the the guy said tank. He was a tanker, and then he beat him beat him more, and then he continues like uh, the rules, and then he says like what's the matter? Like are you sleeping? And then he started to like just go to town on him but this time there was like no response for him so like it was just quiet it was just hearing him beat him at that point like everyone in the cell like i remember like looking at the other guys and like everyone knew what it was we were listening to so we just like processed it and uh eventually he like told the others in the cell to like cleaning up and we could hear all of this because on our windows like it was just the bars there was no window like to separate us from like the outside elements uh, so we could hear everything that was going on and uh, he, he basically like told the other Ukrainians that were in the cell room to cleaning up and then he closed the door. And then after like 15 minutes, like the, the guys in the cell next door, like banging on the door, like shouting for the prison guard. And like in this prison, like you, you never do it because like, like you, you never want to like interact with them because of they can beat you at any moment. So we knew something was wrong if they're, sh- if they're actually shouting for his attention. Um, and then, like maybe like ten, fifteen minutes later, the guard comes back and like asks what's the problem, and, and then they he tells them that like he's not breathing and that they're doing CPR. So and then he goes to get the medic, and she comes back after like fifteen minutes or something similar to that, and uh, they they take the Ukrainians out of the cell, and then we we hear the medic like give the time of death uh, to this new arrival that had just come, and like that was like the moment that it was confirmed that he he died in custody of the prison and he had only come like 20 minutes previously Aiden, this is these are terrible terrible stories they must have a an awful effect on the way you know you regard your fellow man what does that told you about human nature there's just sort of relentless brutality to no purpose i mean the first question you ask yourself is what are they hoping to get out of this you know these res- questioning is you know doesn't produce anything that could could be regarded as useful intelligence so what you, you obviously thought about this pretty much non-stop i imagine but what conclusions have you come to before the invasion i used to look at russia like a, at its military especially after the uh invasion of georgia the, the the russian military went through a total like reform of their armed forces and i was honestly expecting them to be a lot more competent and knowledgeable but Everything that I witnessed, like in captivity, like that, there's a lot of Soviet mentality still there. One of the biggest, like, things that they still use, which is 
completely useless is the Soviet. Uh, it's basically like a rubber band, um, but we use tourniquets, like proper like medical devices, where they use these pr- rubber bands to basically stop blood. Um, but they they easily break, like very easily they break, and they're pretty much useless. But you'll see videos of Russian like soldiers who try to portray themselves as like professional knowledgeable people but you'll see them like have this on their kit and they'll be training other people like to use this even though it's not effective and that that all comes back to like with the way the individual average like russian person views life in general like there's still a heavy subset like mentality of the soviet way and the soviet way of thinking which is this is what you're told. Don't think about anything over it than what we tell you. And because of that, there's there's also no control on the individual actions of people that are in these positions of responsibility. So they're pretty much given free reign to do what they want because they know there is going to be no punishment. But just this relentless brutality, this kind of, you know, this, this sort of culture of sadism, it, it would seem. I'd definitely say it's culturally like sadism um, to a degree. Because a lot of these people that work in this place, like especially in the prison, I remember at one point we, we used to listen because at one point I got moved into like protective custody after the death of Yori Paul, a uh, British humanitarian aid worker that was captured. And as soon as he died, like something changed in like high up, like the, the military or the whoever was in charge, they said, like, take the foreigners and protect them at all costs. So when that happened, they took me out of the cell with the Ukrainians and they put me in a cell next door, which was empty. And then they brought a uh, a Croatian guy from my battalion who I knew, and he was in the same prison as me. I didn't know that, but he they brought him to the prison to the prison cell with me. They put us in, and we, we were trying to work out for ages like why were why are we in the, the same cell together? Like what's going on? And we we later learned that it's because we got placed into protective custody because of the death of the the British guy. And so he spoke really good Russian. So we would, would end up like listening to what's going on in the corridor because it was always our biggest. We, we always wanted to know what was going on or if we needed to prepare to lay down or something. So um, we'd always hear stuff like we'd hear the guards like talking about about how much they hate their job because they're getting paid like pennies. The, the wages that they're getting is like terrible. And you just hear them like complaining about their personal life with like the other guards. Um, so I think I think it's a bit of a mix. It's it's the standard that, that there is no training for this, and because they see other guards do it, they think it's acceptable. Because it again, it it falls back on that Soviet mentality, which also does include like sadism, because the standards of training for like someone like like for a prison guard, there is no training. You just turn up and you get given a uniform and you get told make sure these don't escape. So I, I think a lot of it is it's passed down from like senior people because there is no control on any of it. We should say, um, Aiden, that despite all the horror in this book, there is also humour. And just to lighten the mood, just a touch, I want you to tell us the the wonderful anecdote which comes in the middle of you being forced to make all these calls to people in authority in the UK, and you you eventually get through to a number. And the the woman picks it up, and she's got a Welsh accent. So uh, tell us what happens next. Yeah, so I call, I call this number. I think it was the DVLA, or I think it was the Welsh Assembly. By this point, I was in the prison. I'd been in like captivity for three months, and they, they they'd taken me out pretty much like every day of the week. 
to like do these calls so by this point like i'm pretty like robotic with the way i would do my introductions so i'd be like hello my name's aiden aslin i'm a prisoner of war that was captured in mariupol i'm currently being held in the donetsk in east ukraine and i remember when i started this i i said to the propaganda guys i says like look like if i'm going to say this like i need to say i'm in east ukraine because if i tell them i'm in the donetsk people's republic no one's going to know where that is and so they they allowed me to say in east ukraine um, so I, I do like, I'm a prisoner of war held captive. Um, I'm like trying to make an appeal so you can pass this message on to others. And I remember I contacted this, this woman and she told me like, like she can't help me. Like you, you need to call the police. And I, I'm getting into an argument with this. It's like, I can't call the police. Like I don't have any control. And um, she just continued to say to me like, well, there's nothing I can do. And I was like, I'm like, I'm a prisoner of war. Like I'm going to be sentenced to death. And she's she's still like really adamant. Like I can't like do like she can't do anything. I was like, okay, fair enough. <laughs> she didn't put you on hold though. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, let's let's also try and end on a on a upbeat note. Tell us about the circumstances of your eventual freedom and how that came about. So yeah, the, when when we got released, we were quite shocked because we we didn't expect it, um, especially with it being the involvement of like the Saudi crown prince and Roman Abramovich. But before I get onto it, I'll, I'll just mention a few months. I think it was in August time. We were listening to the, uh, to the radio on the uh, propaganda radio that they played nonstop in our cell. And I remember we were listening to it and they were talking about like the Saudis getting involved to negotiate for something. And we, we, we had no idea. Like, well, I think it was like the Saudis, like why are they getting involved? Because like it didn't make sense. Like, why would the Saudis be involved in negotiations uh, for in the Ukraine war? And I was like, I was like thinking, like, hmm, I wonder if it's anything to do with us. And then a month and a half later, in September twenty first, it's just a normal day for me in Prebek, and we're like in the cell. Like, we get up, and in the morning we heard a Ukrainian. He was taken out of his cell, and as he's like being led along, because I, as I said, like we listen to everything that's going on. And the, the guards like come in like with him past our door and we hear him say to him like, oh, now we're going to take you to be sh- to be shot. But the way he said it, it was like sort of jolly. And I was like saying, I said to Prebit, like, did you hear that? And I was like, what? And I was like, he just said like, you're going to be taken to be shot. But like he, he, he didn't say it like he normally says it. And it says, this is like, what do you expect? Like something along those lines. And I was like thinking like, that, that's not normal. And then an hour or so later, like we we start hearing like a bunch of people in the courtyard, like outside our window, um, like singing the Russian anthem. And again, like I'm like saying, like like what's going on? Because they've never done that before. Like in the entire like five like four months that I've been in this prison, like I've been in the same location, and they've never once like had people do it outside. So I knew it was a gri- big group of people, and I thought, oh maybe. Maybe someone's being, uh, there's some sort of exchange or maybe it's a prisoner transfer. And then we're waiting for lunch. And because because we were placed into protective custody, the guards in our block didn't have the key to open the flap for the tray. So we, we would always have to wait for the uh, responsible who had the key for our door. And um, we ended up missing lunch and we heard everyone else get lunch. And we're, so we were able to keep track of time and, we were waiting for it to arrive. And um, I remember that there was some action on the door and 
we thought it was uh, lunch at first, so we went to grab our like bowls, and then we heard the the doors twisting again, so we knew they were unlocking like the, the main bolts. So we quickly like chucked the uh, bowl in the sink and like laid down. And then I, I presume like maybe oh, I'm I'm going out to do propaganda because at that point the the propagandists hadn't taken me out for like two weeks, which which wasn't normal. And so they they, they shout my name, so I, I go to the entrance of the cell and they put a bag on me, and I was like, okay, I'm going to propaganda. And then they they put me to they put me to one side, and then they shout Prebic, and uh, I I started like getting scared because the last time they did that, like they they took us out once together before, and it was basically just to go see some investigator. But at the same time they did this, we had the hood on us, and we were taken into the propaganda room area, and we could hear all the other Ukrainians that were taken, but they were getting beaten, but no one touched us because at this point we had the protection order on us. Uh, so we're just listening to people getting beat, and we we had no clue as to why they weren't touching us. So I, I thought maybe we were, we were going back to do that again. And because of the amount of times I'd been taken out at this point, I'd completely memorized the path that I would go on when I would go to the propaganda. So because you never see anything because you've got a hood over yourself and you're like always in a, a position like off balance. I remember we were following the path that we normally go to go do the propaganda. And we got to the gatehouse and he opens the door and then we walk through and I'm like thinking, okay, like now we're going to turn right and we're going to go into the propaganda rooms, but we ended up continuing straight. And I remember I got so scared because we had never been, we had never been taken straight ahead before. And um, eventually we, we get to, we cross a courtyard and I only know we were in the courtyard because I could feel the heat of the sun on us. And we go down into some stairs and then they take the hood off me and the the complete attitude of the guards like completely changed. It was like relaxed, like they 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 couldn't be bothered. And he just like said like follow me. And he took me like round the corner and like got his phone out and told me to say like I've been fed, been given uh, medical access. And then he like told me to sing the Russian anthem once once more. He he put me into a he, he took me back to where we were and then put me into a side cell. And then he took Prebrick and did the same with him. And then he put us both into the cell. And like I'm like trying to figure out like what's going on because this isn't normal. I thought okay maybe maybe they might be taking us somewhere, but I'd never been to this part of the prison. Like every time I've been taken out of the prison to go to the investigators, we would always go through the processing entrance. So I'm like trying to work out in my head like what's going on. And eventually, after some time, a guard comes up outside the door, and there's another cell door next to us, and he opens the slit on it, and he like looks in and. You hear like the Ukrainians in there, they start to say like glory to Russia, glory to Russia. But then he like tells them basically to just shut up. And then he like asks them, like, are you like you're not gonna pick up a weapon again? Um and I remember as soon as I heard him say that, I, I quickly like whispered to Prebic. I was like, Prebic, like, did you hear that? Like, did you hear what he just said? Why would he say that? Like, why would he say that? That doesn't make any sense. And then I started like thinking, but at the same time, there's a part of me like telling me, like, don't listen, like, don't listen to it. It's you probably just misunderstood. And then an hour later, like uh, another guard comes into this area outside, and he he's completely oblivious to what's going on. And he asks like one of the guard like like what's this? And the guard like says to him "Obman," which in Russian is like exchange. So as soon as I heard that again, I say to like Prebic, "Did you hear that?" Like he said exchange, and I'm still like conflict like conflicting with myself because I'm like still telling myself like it's it's nothing. Like don't get your hopes up. And then at some point, he uh, takes me out. And I have to sign some paperwork and 
some documents and he one of the guards like like super relaxed and he's like he says to me um like did you hear about the queen and i was like yeah i heard it on the news and it that was it like he just didn't say anything else and then he then he asked uh, like so are you, are you gonna go back to fighting i said uh no no i'm gonna go home and then because these guards always used to make us uh, sing every day I decided to test it just to see if if this is really it. And I remember I said to him, they said, like, what are you going to do when you go back home? And I said to him, I think I'm going to become a singer. And then they just laughed. And I think it was like an hour or two later, we got taken out and they put us into the back of a truck and they drove us to Rostov with about 35 uh, Ukrainians. And about halfway in between, they... Uh, they took the foreigners off the back of the truck, which at this point was 10 of us. And I, I knew that it was the foreigners because I could hear them all wincing from pain from being like with the way they like manhandled us into the back of the truck and put us into stress positions with duct tape and stuff. And I thought maybe we're, we're going across like the, the line of contact to be exchanged. And eventually I realized we're just being driven somewhere. And then we end up in the airport in uh, Rostov. And go on, Aidan. I mean, what what happens next? Because uh, it's pretty extraordinary, isn't it? You're you're put on a a, a jet, and yeah. So we we get to Rostov, uh, we get unloaded, and like, this is after a night of traveling, like in in this stress position, like sat down. And you've got like your hands out in front of you, and there's like someone in front. And we we get there, we get unloaded, and we get led into the airport terminal, and um, we basically they take off the duct tape and i see like the russian like military police in front of me and then i see like the saudis but i didn't know they were saudis i thought maybe qataris or something i wasn't sure exactly what it was we were doing but i i, I knew from my knowledge previously that there was a previous prisoner exchange with kiev and uh, moscow where they sent prisoners on a plane like to kiev and then to moscow so i thought maybe we're being sent to kiev by plane and then obviously the Saudis they gave us a medical assessment, but like while this is all going on, there's a guy in the background who who I who I who I noticed, but I didn't really recognise. I thought maybe he was because he was wearing a suit and whatnot, and I thought maybe he was just Russian press that was just making some video for the prisoner exchange. We we ended up waiting for like ages, four hours, just waiting like in this terminal. Like, I started getting like scared that maybe whatever it was that we were being exchanged for would fall through and would be sent back. And then eventually the uh, we get wind because someone asked one of the Saudis like like what is it we're waiting for and they say like we're waiting for confirmation that they've received the person that they're like exchanging for you guys. Eventually the military police get the call to like take us and uh, we get loaded onto the bus and they drive us around the tarmac to the plane that's waiting for us and like the MP's like last instruction was follow his commands if anyone like doesn't follow what i say like you're going to get electrocuted and then we i basically because i was at the front i get off first and i basically go up the stairs and i'm met by the saudi like security who like pat me down and then i go through the through the corridor of the plane and i go to the back area where there's like a seating area for us and the guy who i saw in the airport he's like waiting there like starts speaking to me and uh, he's like he's like asking like where you're from and I, i'm british he's like i'm glad you're like out and whatnot and then sean came along and then sean's like talking to him again and like he, he says to him like you don't half look like roman abramovich and this is like that's because i am him and he's having a bit of a chat with him and then he sits down and i said i said to sean i was like like who is he like who's roman abramovich 
And he was like, oh, it's the Chelsea Football Club owner. And then after that, we were flown from Rostov to uh, Rihad in Saudi Arabia. And then from there, we were flown back to London. So a happy ending. Thank God. Uh, what a dreadful ordeal. And uh, I must say, you know, we're just full of admiration for the way you've handled it, what you've been through and your bravery and and giving your testimony now. So thanks so much for coming on and talking to us, Aidan, and all the best of luck in the future. No problem. Thank you. Well, I'm I'm almost speechless. So, uh, what an appalling uh, experience, but also how uplifting to to hear uh, that the way that Aiden has dealt with it. He, he's come through this ordeal with his head high. He's he's obviously got got huge emotional resources, and he seems to be processing this ghastly experience, which uh, would floor most people, I think, in, in a in a very constructive way. Okay, that's all we have time for. Do join us on Friday for our usual roundup of the news and when we'll be answering listeners' questions. Goodbye.